Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top, the body-positive, sex-positive show with your host Jenny Lynn and Auntie Vice. This show contains explicit language, not suitable for most minors or easily offended majors. It contains opinionated discussion about politics, race, sex, fat folks, gender, which may not be suitable for conservatives. Additionally, some shows may contain references to science, statistics, history, research, mathematics, and reality, which may not be suitable for American evangelicals. Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. Thanks for joining us for another episode. This is your co-host, Auntie Vice, and we have a guest co-host again today. With Once Sharon. again, it's me. Woo! Welcome, Sharon. Sharon. It's Yay. good to have you back. Oh, good to be back. We have a couple of quick announcements before we get into the show today. First, Fat Chicks now has a new home. Oh, what's the new home? We have made arrangements with Classy Hippie Tea in Oak Park, Sacramento. Yeah, Broadway and Oak Park. Our first taping is October 21st. So you can check on our website and all our social media. We'll be promoting who's there. You can come Uh, see our guests and talk to them and talk to the fat chicks and enjoy some lovely tea. Uh, Leo, who runs it, is a tea sommelier and quite experienced with giving us good things to drink. Most definitely. I got some of his tea. You do. It's good. And we'll drop the tea. (laughs) The other good news is our audio producer and guest co-host today, Sharon, has a new business. He officially launched a serious production. Serious production is now in effect. For all your audio needs. Yes, all the needs. So if you're out there and you're a podcaster or you want to be a podcaster or you need a DJ or you need a party setup, Sharon is your man. And you can contact yes. him at aseriousproduction.com or through our sites and we'll get you in touch with, with the DJ with the mostest. So today we have some great guests. We have Tina Hayes, who is a kink educator and model, belly dancer. Fine belly dancer. Fine belly dancer. (laughs) College professor. She does all sorts of cool stuff. She's on today and talking with us. And Miss Evie Vane, the winner of this year's Golden Flogger Award for the nonfiction category for her book, Bondage for for Everybody. You're running for that. You're running for that Flogger Award. She was up against me. We were the two finalists. So congratulations to Evie. She'll be on the show talking about bondage, even if you're a bigger girl or a bigger guy or wherever you fit in the spectrum. And all those lovely, lovely things that come with it. She's she's great. And Tina is wonderful. So for today's topic, nice. 40. 40. The big 4-0. Both you and I have crossed that, that mark on the timeline. Yes, we walked the line. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've been kind of fascinated with what happens with people when they get around 40. You know, there's the kind of classic midlife crisis they they talk about with guys but that's usually in their 50s and it's the sports car and the young blonde um people get to 40 and all of a sudden they start dropping off all the shoulds i should do this i should do that because 40 for a lot of people coming up on that mark most people i know when they get to 40 it's like oh crap I should own a house. I should have my kids. I should be this. I should be that. Well, if you look at it, it's you've you've done twenty years of your life as an adult. Mm-hmm. So it's now you looking back and going, "Oh my gosh, I've done twenty years, and this is what I've done." Right, and <laughs> I've, I've never met somebody at forty who goes, "Yeah, I'm right where I thought I would be at 40. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and in dropping away a lot of those shoulds, you also start to figure out what you really want, mm. and who you want to be. That's true. So let's talk about you turning 40. It, it happened fairly recently. 
Well, it happened a year. It happened two, almost two years ago. Almost two years ago. Yes. And my forty was ridiculously awesome because it, if you haven't seen me on Snap on on Instagram, I basically put up a lot of things of saying for what forty is. I pointed at a, a forty speeds uh, speed limit sign. I, I had a forty in my hand. I pulled out two twenties. I made forty interesting. But you were not comfortable necessarily turning 40. You no. had a little bit of angst coming up to yes, it. Yes, I did. The reason why I had angst is because, just like I pointed out, this is, you have now done 20 years of adulthood. I mean, the first 20 you've done, that was with your parents. Now you've done 20 years of just you and your adulthood. Most people look at it as, well, if I've done 20 years, what should I have been doing during those first, those adult 20 years of my life? And before you turn 40, like in your 20s and stuff, because mm-hmm. 20, I can remember in my 20s thinking, God, 40s, 40s a long way it off. It does seem that way, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> now, now, I get, now I creep up for 60. I'm like, oh my God, 60 is going to be that little thing like, wow. <laughs> so thinking back to where you were like in your 20s, mm. what did you think you would have at 40? Where, what did you think 40 would be for you? Uh, 40 would be, I would have, uh, I probably, I knew I was going to have kids. That's one I knew I thought I was going to be married. Still looking at having maybe a station wagon, a job, maybe sending my kids off to college. Most of the stuff that most, most people see it, most people see 40 year olds doing or dealing with during the, the time. They don't see themselves partying out much. You think of 40 year olds at the club and they're, they're the creepy old people yes. at that point when you're in your 20s. I can remember being in my 20s and, you know, in, in gay bars. Mm. I'm not sure if it's still there, but. It, at my time, there was the tea dance, which is on Sundays from There's four to eight. Dance. It's like a, you know, the older folks come in and have their cocktails. They um, called it the tea dance. They call it the tea dance. Wow. And I, in my 20s, I used to think, God, the tea dance is so lame. It's just old people sitting around who've lost their groove. And I knew I had finally reached a, another age marker when I'm like, the tea dance is a brilliant idea. <laughs> like, I can go out, I can have a cocktail with my friend and be home in time for my shows in bed before work on Monday. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, there, there, were, there were age markers when I started getting excited about soup. Um, soup, huh? Hey, what, what's if, I kind? Got, if I got good soup waiting for me for dinner, I'm now, like, that's a, that's a good thing. I'm a butternut squash soup You are guy. a butternut squash soup, man. Yes. But yeah, I mean, th- there's... A real different perception that shifts. So, you did have the kids by the time I did you have the first, kids. You, you, well, you still have the kids. I still have the kids. <laughs> they, like they, one one is getting close to the um is going to high, getting ready to go to high school. But yeah, yeah, yeah. She has two more years, and she's getting ready to go to high school. But were there other things that you were sad about not having at forty, or really were disappointed, or was it something that it was just? Oh, that's what I thought I was, and I'm not there, and I'm okay with there's it. Some things, there's some things you, you anticipate that you would have had. I was, I was thinking that I probably would have been a management, in a, in a in management position by now, and working for, it really didn't matter what company, but it really looking into management itself. Not seeing this as a, a shift in, posi- in, in careers. I didn't yeah, see this you as my shift career. career. Yes. At, at 40, you yes. did a big shift. Well, uh, technically. Or 41, maybe. Well, this is the funny part. This career has always been, this career has always been screaming to me since I was, since I was 19. But I've always saw it as a side gig or, or not even a side gig, a hobby. So even though I've done bands, uh, even though I've done shows, even though 
I've done so many other, so many things while being in production and also doing music and stuff and even doing um, podcasting. I never saw it as a complete career. And now it's come to fruition and it's kind of caught me off guard. It's, it's kind of, it feels not comfortable, like a new comfort. It's like an old comfortable, it's like an old pair of shoes that you got comfortable. It's like, oh yeah, I remember these guys. <laughs> well, and, and you're finally doing what you've wanted to do since you were like 19. Yes. Which is awesome. Yes. Yeah. Similarly, I, I left my career with the state at 40. Scary, uh, huh? <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I, I was in management. Uh, <laughs> and, and walked away from that to be a freelance writer and, and work in that arena. Because I just couldn't take the BS of a regular job anymore. Right. Like, and I know a ton of people, like my tattoo artist, um, for those of you who've seen photos of me, you've seen the sleeve with all the, the birds and stuff. She's amazing, phenomenal woman who worked for the state until she was 40. And when mm. her kid graduated from high school, she's like, I've always wanted to be a tattoo artist. And within five years had gone from her internship and beginning to being voted the best tattoo artist in Roseville, California. Mm. Like, wow. And just pursued her dream, and she's she's incredible. Wow! Um, so shout out to Stephanie. Hi. But the way the way it seems that forty before is either forty or fifty is that switch is is now becoming that new switch zone. I mean, people have now as people have grown, gone into their somewhat two two decades of their their adult phase, they start they either become you know they've been mothers. They've been in jo- several jobs or a couple jobs or whatever. They've they've seen what they're at, and then they say, "Wait a minute, I'm going to change. I'm going to do something different." And it it moves from what I should do to what feeds me. Yes, right. And you you know most of us still have to make the bills. We have responsibilities in our lives, but you start figuring out a way to cut out the stuff that doesn't give back to you. Mm. That is that drains you. Right. That's true. And I think that that happens for a lot of folks at 40. One of the other things that happens yeah, okay. when you get into the 40s is like you disappear sexually from the media, especially as a woman. Um, okay. But men, men too. There's be a lot of coverage of people in their 20s and 30s, you know, in the media and around their sexuality. And then again, like finding it when you're over 65, like we have Frankie and Grace and right. you know, a few of these shows that, that look at older folks um, being sexual. But for those of us between 40 and 60... It's like we go into this void. Right. How has, did, did sex disappear for you in your 40s? No. Did no, it change? Uh, my stamina changed. Your stamina? Yes, my stamina has changed. I mean, not as, not as vibrant as I was when I was in my 20s. But the funny part is in my, my late 30s, around 36, 37, 38, I was actually, I actually lost substantial amount of weight and was was bringing up my stamina again i kind of i kind of petered out a little bit when i turned 40 but i should get myself back into it but yeah anything else change with that relationships my relationship with women changed because you start now looking at who do you want to who in your relationship do you really want to um your involvement with the person is because back in the days used to when you were with somebody it would be oh okay i am not gonna fart mm-hmm. well i'm not gonna fart on our first date <laughs> i'm not gonna do anything inappropriate i'm not all these things that we're that men or even women were trying to hold back on or you know trying to uh, trying to keep covered until they got either married with the person or they got 
so close along in the in the relationship that they will bring back out. You you now get to the point where you you don't you don't bring all of it, but you also give disclaimers. You start off with giving disclaimers out, like, okay, well, I am not interested in horseback riding. Mm-hmm. It's like, like if you are, I'm sorry, but I am not. If you don't like me shooting my gun at these dang um, raccoons, you might not enjoy that. Um, that that kind of person. You know, that's those are one those few things that people now give disclaimers. Where back in the days, they would kind of held back on some of that information until the person saw it in their own fruition. But yeah. So you bring up farts. <laughs> yes. When we got to and and we got together right after I turned forty and shortly before you turned forty. And I was I was pretty typical about dating is I didn't want you to hear my morning dump. Place I had, the bathroom was right next to the bedroom and because there was a window there was no fan mm. to like cover the noises. So we went out and, you know, for several weeks we're going out and, you know, you'd stay overnight or whatever. You'd have to get up and leave oh. for work. And it's like, great, get you out the door and then I can go do my thing. And I don't know, maybe a month in or so, you spent the night and we were going to have breakfast. I'm like, oh no. So I go in and I'm I'm right. taking care of my morning needs, dropping some heat. <laughs> and here you start giggling in the bedroom. <laughs> well, if you say dropping some heat, what am I going to not do? Laugh? <laughs> And it was like, it was the best thing you could have done, because I didn't think you knew I could hear you giggling, but you just sit there going like, just laughing, and I walk in and you said, oh, well, I guess you're not just full of rainbows and glitter. (laughs) Hey, I've had a lot of, a lot of women tell me, we just, we crap out rainbows. I'm like, yeah, right. (laughs) But it was very free. It was like. Okay, so I can at least be that part of myself. It was yes. like he, he can accept that, you know, there are those morning necessities. I mean, we uh, we let's be honest. Reality hits I've I had a girl basically at work who can burp the Pledge of Allegiance and I kinda looked at that like, Oh my gosh, I'm not dating you, but that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think you relax a lot more, which is great. And I think a lot of people relax more in a lot of areas. Right. And you quit worrying about the stuff that doesn't really matter and start worrying a lot more about the stuff that does. Yes. Um, it's not that you don't give a fuck. It's that you give a fuck about stuff that really does matter in terms of a global perspective or a family perspective or something like that. Right. And you get tired of drama. Most people will say they're tired of it, but like by 40, people just start cutting it out, I yeah. think, which is nice. Yeah. This becomes a... you. Really come become this no nonsense type of person. You don't take no fluff anymore, and it's even more interesting when you look at just the dating online scene. I mean, Tinder and stuff—they actually will let you know off the head and give you a disclaimer of, "I'm not into a guy that's still living with their mom. I'm not into you. Don't have a car. If you don't have a job, don't even try." <laughs> You better hope you better hope you have all their things in priority before you even say hello to me. <laughs> I see a lot of people do that and then a lot of people have their, you know, list of what you have to be to be Oh, a the list, yes. Which honestly I think is a stupid thing because people will surprise you. Yeah, people do. But I think figuring out what what you need to be happy, what you need in terms of support, in terms of care, in terms of kindness gets real clarified, especially if you're back out on the dating scene in your 40s versus married and settled. But- but I do have a question for you. Does the idea of motherhood come into into mind, any, or do you just is it one of those things? Because I know a lot of women. I know some women that when they hit their forties and they haven't had motherhood, motherhood yet, 
it's either their biological clock goes up or there's always a change and shift of mindset. You know, I think that's real individualized. I think mm-hmm. for a lot of women, those early 30s are the big year. And like hormonally, that's, yes. that's where the pressure is if you're going to reproduce. There are some women like me who known since I was a teenager that I didn't want kids, that I would be a bad mom. <laughs> okay. No, I would have been a really bad mom. And I knew it, and I, and I didn't want kids with everything in me. So, right. And biologically, it just wasn't going to be an option, and I knew that. So there right. wasn't a lot of pressure to have that. I know my sister, who got pregnant at 35, mm-hmm. always wanted kids. And so as she came into that mid-30s, there was this incredible pressure, pressure. to get pregnant. So she experienced that. But women are getting pregnant later and later now. Yes. And I think for some women, they really want kids. And I think for some men, they really want kids. I know you know, a number of, of guys who really, that was important to them, is having, having kids. Even and though adoptions and stuff still work, but unfortunately, people still want their own. <laughs> yeah, which I've never, I mean, so much of my family is adopted. Mm. And oh, really? Both both in my biological family, like I have quite a few cousins who were adopted and an uncle. I one, didn't know that. In my chosen family, because I have a lot of gay friends and stuff. There's That's a lot of, lot of adoption. So that always seemed real natural to me. I don't get the, the necessity to have your own bio kid. And if you look at most family trees, I don't know why you'd want your own bio kid. I think they kind of think that they don't want to deal with someone else's used property. um but yeah i mean i I do think you get real clear on that at that point and what you want so we have a great show ahead of us today most definitely yes so thank you for being my my co-hostess with the most today thank you for letting me and uh stay tuned through the break we'll be back with you Welcome back to Fat Chicks on Top. You're here with Auntie Vice today, and our guest is Tina Hayes. Hi, Tina. Hi, how are you? I know Tina in lots of different capacities. You're a belly dancer, and you're a performer. You perform here in Sacramento as well as around uh, Northern California, at least, as far as I know. Yes. She works for the state. She rides horses. She models. She teaches us at college. She does all sorts of stuff. So... I asked her on the show today so we can talk about that glorious age of the 40s. Glorious. <laughs> no, actually, I'm probably, I would say that I'm more comfortable with myself now in my 40s by far than I have been at any other age. Yeah, that's been my experience. Like, I may not like what my body is doing necessarily, but I accept it more. Yeah, I think probably what I would say about what my body is doing is I think I appreciate my body now more than I did a decade ago or or in my 20s. I understand that it has capacities and I can ask it to do things and it doesn't have to be perfect to be able to still do those things and bring me to wonderful places in my life. So what ha- helped you get there from your 20s and and develop that appreciation? Well, let's see. Probably I think part of that is just for a lot of women, it's living in a society where it's so youth and a particular body style focus that at some point, um, as we mature, we, we, we really kind of start to get pissed off about that whole thing. At least I know I did. And I think probably, too, uh, I have a daughter and watching her struggle with a lot of the societal expectations for women. 
that you're only valuable when you're young and beautiful and a certain body type and a certain ethnicity and a certain whatever, that it helped me to step up to the plate and say, you know, that's bullshit. That was part of it. Having a daughter helped helped me refocus on what was important to me and what my body meant and, and how she viewed her body. Uh, I wanted her to have a healthy a healthier viewpoint of herself than I did when I was her age. So you bring her up and, and raising a daughter, which is something that I don't have experience with. You know, being aware that people see women in very judgmental ways, you're supposed to be one way. How, when she was growing up, did you talk about body, her body and those expectations in a way to try and diffuse some of that pressure and make her okay with her body? Well, I think the first thing that was important in that was modeling that behavior, being okay with my flaws. When she would point out, oh, well, this isn't perfect about myself. I would say, oh, really? Oh, well, let me show you what's not perfect about me. And it would normalize for her, not only that no body is perfect in every way, unless they're airbrushed. And we talked about that too. From a very young age, she'd bring magazines to me and say, mom, look at this model. And I, I told her, honey, let's take a look at the internet. I want to show you some pictures of what happens in Photoshop. And what was her response? When, because I don't think everybody realizes that those models don't look like they look on those pages. I don't like, even look like, like I look on the pages when I model. I know that the modeling that I've done, they <laughs> Photoshop is a wonderful and terrible tool. When photographers do their art, they want it to look a certain way because that's an expectation for them as well. They, they live in a world of their models have to be perfect too because, you know, that, that represents them, which does all of us a disservice. Right. You're in a different position than a lot of guests we have on the show is you're, you are traditionally incredibly beautiful and attractive. And a lot of our, I mean, a lot of our guests come on and they're heavier and, and have dealt with that. But you've, you're, you know, what's coming across is you're still not going, I love every inch of my body and I rule the world because of this. Right. right? There's still that, that pressure. With the body positive movement and all the emphasis on love yourself as, as you are, do you feel included in that? Or do you, because there is thin shaming that goes on too. Let's see. Do I feel included in body positive? I think for me, I probably don't feel included because I've gotten to the point, and I can say this now, because I've gotten to the point where I just don't give a shit what people mm -hmm. think. Uh, I am how I am. I'm comfortable in my skin. I have stretch marks. I have scars. I have things that make me not perfect, and I don't care. Do I get upset? No. Do I get enraged when I see body judgment going on around me with my friends that don't fit whatever societal nonsense says that they should be? I'm, I feel like I have even more of a responsibility to be a champion for people to feel good about themselves and to embrace who they are and what their body wants to be. So mm -hmm. I don't know. I kind of feel like I'm outside of it in one way. And in another way, I feel like I have even more responsibility. Yeah, that makes sense to me. You brought up your daughter and I know she's been struggling with an eating disorder. Uh, do you want to 
talk a little bit from like the mom perspective of what it was like, how you found out about it, how you guys are addressing it and working with that? My daughter is an amazing, um, mature person for her age. She's 19 and she, like a lot of young girls, has struggled with body image. She has had doctors tell her, oh, well, you just need to this or you just need to that. And she has done all of the things that the doctors tell her she just needs to do. She's a beautiful, vivacious, wonderful person. And sometimes she feels like crap because she can't fit into society's standards. And one of the really tough things as a mom is you're, you're right. Uh, physically, I fit a lot of of those standards. And it's hard for her and it kills me as her mother because all I want for her is to for her to love herself and for her to feel loved by those around her for who she is. And how have we addressed that? Um we talk. We're we're really close. I have she has sought um help with a counselor and she constantly is aware and works works with her her challenges. We talk, we talk, we talk so much. Mm-hmm, so we much. I'm there and if she feels like crying or screaming or whatever, she knows that she can come to me and she knows that I will always be a place of non-judgment for her. That's amazing. And and it's great you have that relationship cuz so many women when from like 14 to 26, you hate your mother. (laughs) (laughs) And I saw it when I was, when my friends were that age and we all thought our parents were stupid. And now that most of my friends have daughters in that range, like they're like, she's never going to love me again. I'm like, nah, give it till 26, 27. She'll come back. Well, I didn't say I wasn't stupid. (laughs) (laughs) But to have a, a relationship where she can actually talk to you. Like I moved across the country to avoid mine at that age. So it's fantastic that you. Sometimes I wish she'd talk to me less. Sometimes I'm like, sometimes she comes home and she tells me, oh, well, I did this or this. I'm like, oh, Christ, did I really want to know that? <laughs> You're oversharing with mama. Here. But no, it's great. It's great that she feels safe enough to, to share pretty much everything with me. And I'm, I'm, I feel blessed to have that kind of relationship with her. That's fantastic. So while we're on family relationships, you recently got married. Congratulations. I did. Thank you. When we first met, you were at a point where I don't think you would have considered marriage for any good goddamn reason. I would have rather chewed razor blades. <laughs> so how did you, you know, you were in a, a very bad relationship. You got out of it. And how did you manage to heal enough to actually like another human being and want to share your life with them again? Hmm. Well, that's a complex <laughs> question. Um, I've always been pretty introspective. I think sometimes when I look back on it, if I'm going to be honest, I think I just did it out of spite. Yeah, because if I spent the rest of my life miserable, then the person that made me miserable would continue to win. And I, <laughs> I know that's probably not the, you know, most noble of reasons, but it's probably the truest. Uh-huh. No, I, I can totally understand that. That's like, yeah, watch this, bastard. I'm going to be I'm going to heal, motherfucker. <laughs> that's right. Take that. <laughs> That's fantastic. Did you do anything different this time around than you've done in past relationships? I mean, did it change the way, going through something that bad, did it change the way you approached things like dating and relationships? Oh, yeah. Well, I had been in that relationship for nearly 13 years. 
And so getting back out in the realm of dating was absolutely terrifying. It was, what did I do differently? I, before, before this time around, I had always just met people through friends. And I ventured into online dating at 40, 41, I, I don't know, beginning of my 40s. And I was like, what, what, what is this? <laughs> and it was, it was amazing. So you ventured out into online dating at your 40s. Yes. And how was that world weird. for you? It, it was weird. It was, at first it was like my ego was, was just through the freaking roof. I was like, I am it. I was <laughs> like, there was, there was guys left and right messaging me and all this stuff. And after, you know, the first couple of, of days of, of a lot of messages, most of which were, hey, babe. You're hot. It was really, it only took a few days to get really stupid. It was old after a few days. It's like, oh, yeah, um, yeah. No, I'm sure that they send this message to pretty much anybody that has a pulse. And yeah. so I, I figured out pretty quick that I wasn't really all that in a bag of chips. I was just another person on a dating site. And I started to be a lot more selective in, okay, this person actually has to have something in common with me or to introduce themselves with some kind of intellect or common interest before I'll even talk to them. Complete sentence. Yeah, a complete yeah. sentence is always helpful. <laughs> yeah. Now, for me, that was what you and I had the same thing. I divorced at 36, and I went back onto the dating scene at 38. It is so different and so terrifying when you're that age. It is. Like, it was, I thought I was not going to meet anybody. I'm like... I'm older, I'm grayer, I'm heavier. Like, this is not the prime to be on. A, but they're all over. It's, it's insane when you go out there, like the response that people get. It is. Do you have any tips or tools for women who might be going back out there in their 40s on online dating to make it more successful or less awful? Let me see. Less awful. We're not even going to go for good. We're just going to. Okay. <laughs> Less awful, uh, let's see, don't take any nasty comments personally, because they will, if you tell someone no, you will probably get a nasty comment here or there or more than here and there. Don't take it personally. Just consider yourself forewarned that that, that was a, a, a bullet that you dodged. Probably to make it better, um, put who you really are out there. It will help weed out the BS. Um, don't put. Don't put what you think people will want to hear, because if you do, you're going to get a bunch of garbage that you have to sift through. I think that it's easy to want to advertise ourselves, and that's human nature. And I did that at first, but then I was like, you know, if I'm really looking for something, if I just wanted a hookup, then that would make sense. But I really wasn't looking for that. You know, that's great for people that for whom that's, that's what they want. And if that's what you are looking for at this present time, then, then advertise away. But if you're looking for someone to spend a lot more time with, then you probably really, really don't want to waste your time saying anything that isn't really important to you. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense. So with, with your new husband, did you guys meet online? We did. We met on OkCupid. Okay really? We You're did. one of the success stories. We're That's one of amazing. the success stories. <laughs> That's awesome. You, so you had mentioned that with a lot of stuff, you're just kind of 
said, fuck it, I'm okay with me at this age. Did that go with dating too? Or did was there that need to, you know, keep the crazy under your hat for 30 days or whatever when you're dating? Did, uh, did the same I'm okay with me apply by the time you guys met? I think it probably applied by the time we met. I mean, I being in my 40s, I think I felt like I didn't want to waste a lot of time. So any of the dates that I did go on, I didn't go on very many uh, before we started seeing each other. The questions were pretty, pretty to the point. I didn't, I didn't mess around with, I just put it out there. I I had a couple of things that that were kind of deal breakers for me. And I put them right out there from the beginning, from the very first date. And I was like, well, here it is, buddy. Either, either here's your chance, run. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that was my experience. Like when I met, he, he jokes all the time because we actually met at a poetry reading, my, my partner, who's our lovely sound man. And like on the first date, I'm like, he, and when he'll tell you the story. It looks like I'm agender, I'm bipolar, I'm kinky, I'm submissive. Like, this is who I am. You, All the flags are there. If you want to run, run. Right. Life's short. Yeah. And it feels a lot shorter at this age to it me. It does. I don't have time to waste anymore. I, I, I got to do stuff because it's the, the stuff that fulfills me and gives me what I need. Yeah. And all that drama and bullshit that, like, in my 20s was kind of fun. Yeah. Isn't? Yeah, no. I was a mom when I was in my 20s, so I actually had my son um, when I was 18 years old. Oh, wow. So okay. I, I've, I've been a grown-up before I should have been a grown-up. And I don't know, when I reached my 40s, it was like a weird combination of my kids are grown, woohoo, and I don't have time for bullshit. So it, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe it gave me a little bit of a early midlife crisis. And I was just like, "Mm, I want this, 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 this. I don't want this, this, this. And that's the way it is. So how did you come into the clarity on your wants and don't wants? Like what gave you clarity around those issues? Well, the don't wants are a lot easier than the wants. The don't wants are anything that doesn't feed me or make me feel valued in a relationship. Those are pretty, those are pretty obvious to me. Um, the wants are a little more complicated. For instance, um, when I was dating, I put out there that I really like dancing, which I do, both partnered dancing and uh, different styles of regular dancing or self-dancing, like we were talking about belly dancing, for example. And I really enjoyed dancing, but was that something that I absolutely had to have in a relationship? Or was I, I also am a runner? And I also ride horses. So I took a look at the things that were important to me in my life. And I decided which things were absolute, had to have to make me happy in a relationship. And the conclusion that I came down to was very few things that are hobbies or things that I enjoy are actually deal breakers in a relationship. It's, it's the person and how I feel when I'm with them. And can they enjoy me? And can I enjoy them? And do they support the things that make me happy? They don't have to... They don't have to need to do them or want to do them. They just have to support me in my happiness. So you mentioned you know, you're a runner, you're a dancer, you ride horses. All those are very physical issues. How has that impacted as you've gotten older? Do you, are you still doing what you did at 20? Are you stronger now? Or do you approach things differently now physically? I am stronger now. I am more tenacious now. And everything freaking hurts. <laughs> It, it afterwards it's and it's a lot no, before oh before 
no, it hurts right when I start. And I'm like, oh, crap. Okay, you can do this. You can do this. So I have to pep talk myself a lot more than I did when I was in my 20s. Um, but I would say that physically, because of that dedication, um, I'm stronger. Mentally, I'm stronger. My body sometimes wants to know what the hell I'm doing. But I tell it, shut up. We're going to do this because I like it. And I do it anyway. There have been some adjustments. I used to be able to just constantly, you know, run, 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 run. But now I have to run. And then on the weekends, I try and not just take a break, take a break, force myself to realize that I'm not 20 anymore and that my poor knees and my poor hips and my poor back are going to be really ticked off at me if I don't let myself have some downtime. So probably listening to my body has become a little bit more priority. I'm not I'm not terribly great at it. My husband sometimes looks at me and says, what are you doing? You need to relax. You're not relaxing. You're still not relaxing. (laughs) (laughs) So as you're starting to get some of the perspective, you know, as you get into your 40s, I think at least for a lot of women that I know and that I've talked to, you start to get more grounded in who you are as a person. Yes. Like you finally start becoming who you've worked to become, what surprised you the most in that? What surprised me the most about that? I spent a lot of time giving in my younger years to my kids, to my friends, to my family, to whomever. And that's great. And that's wonderful. But I think somewhere along the way, somewhere in the last couple of years, I've started to say, what the hell about me? What about me? And so I have started to tap into my capacity to, to be selfish. That's great. <laughs> to, yeah. to say, look here, I need this. I'm going to go get this. I'm going to take care of myself. I am just as valuable as my children, as my family members, as my friends. And I need to take care of me. So I think that's probably been the biggest thing is the ability to say, okay, wait a minute. Why is it okay to take care of everyone else, but not myself? It's not okay. Probably that. That's awesome. I know for me, and I know for a lot of people, as the big 4-0 approached, there was that, even if you don't want to buy into the society thing, there's that, shit, I'm going to be 40. This is what, you know, and then all the supposed tos come in. I was, by 40, I was supposed to do this, and I was supposed to do that. And I said, so for people who are facing that mark, now that, you crossed it and made it to the other side. There is light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> did did you go through that period of reflection and did it change how you entered your 40s? Or was it something that if you could go back and talk to your 39-year-old self, you'd just say, oh, give it up? I cried. Yeah? I cried. For like a month before I turned 40, I cried. I looked at myself in the mirror and I thought somehow that magically... On my 40th birthday, my boobs were going to hit the ground and I don't know, my hair was all going to turn gray and fall out. And I don't know what I thought, but I cried. And then I said, what the hell are you doing? And um, I got all my friends together, all my performance friends, my belly dancers, my hula dancers, my fire spinners, my aerialists. And we threw a humongous 40th birthday party to celebrate being alive. Screw the number, screw the number. And um, then I woke up the next day and I was 40 and one day old. And I'm like, well, crap, this isn't any different. What was the big (laughs) deal? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. 
So it's just been one one day after another of that. Well, crap, this isn't really a big deal. <laughs> yeah, I, that's been me. It was like, oh, my God, I was supposed to have all of this done by 40. And it's like reverse of turning 21. Yes. Like at 21, you're like, my life's going to open up and I can finally drink and I can do all of this wonderful stuff. And at 40, it's like there's that panic of it's going to be that day and then everything's going to shut down and I'm never going to be able to advance again. And Yes, true. And I used to care so much what other people thought of me. And again, somewhere, it's almost like because of that age thing and the society nonsense that goes around youth and, and a certain aesthetic and all of that. That when you reach that four o, you're like, hmm, maybe I'm kind of free from all that crap now. I don't have to. I don't have to follow those rules. I'm not twenty. I don't have to. I don't have to. I can. I can be me. Screw that stuff. I think it's one of the most freeing things. Is all of a sudden all these women I know after forty are like, uh, fuck those societal rules, and I'm gonna do me. Yeah. And I kind of think we're going to be the ones to change the world because it's like all that pressure is released in a way. It Once is. you get past it, it's like, oh, that was all bullshit. Now I can really work on change. Yeah, I'm flying under the radar now. Nobody, I'm 40. <laughs> well, and like we were talking. <laughs> Except I'm not. <laughs> right. I mean, we were talking before the show, like you disappear, like you have people up through their mid 30s that are in the public eye and then like after 65. Yeah. You know, but there's this whole group of us that have kind of disappeared. Right. And it's like, oh, but that's when we're the most dangerous is you, you're not going to see us coming. You're not watching us. (laughs) And we have the brains and the physical strength and shit to really fuck up your world. Yeah. You know, and as a woman, there are certain parts of being 40 that I am really loving because in my 20s, you know, sex was, eh, sex was okay, depending upon this situation or the partner but in my 40s i am i'm rocking it sex gets better it's so much better it's like 150 times better i don't worry about anything i don't care if i if i do not care what my face looks like when i'm having an orgasm i do not care if i sound like a a wild animal dying or something (laughs) like that I, i just don't care it feels good i am i'm all about that so i just you know Life's short. If it feels good, embrace it. No, I, when I was putting my, my first uh, kink book together, I was reading all this stuff on like advice columns and what they say. And I came across this one in Cosmo about how to avoid tit creep, which is when you're on your back and your boobs like move out towards your <laughs> armpit. So it's like positions during sex to avoid tit creep. And all I could think of is like, if I'm that worried about what my tits look like and wait where they are, that's not good sex. Yeah, that is not good sex. And I think worrying about it is, you know, those appeal to women in their 20s and stuff. It's like, oh, we got to keep them right. And I'm, like at, at 40, I don't care if they're going two different directions and going to hit you in the head. Like, I don't care either. Those suckers could be spinning in circles. And that's if they're spinning in circles, it's all good. Exactly. <laughs> and they don't even have to be in sync or go in the same direction at that point. If those suckers are moving, you're doing something right. <laughs> and I think that's the wonder. It's like, oh, my God, sex just kind of leveled up. And it's. It's not something anybody tells you, but it does get better. No, because I think for me, for myself, and I will only ever speak for myself, when I was in my 20s, I, it, I was worried. I was so worried about, you know, was I, was I pretty when I was having sex? Was I alluring? Did I smell right? Did I this? Did I that? Now I'm like, 
I didn't take a shower and, and you're, no, you're, no, I don't have time. We're getting busy right now. This is the way it is. And I love it so much better. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't at this point in my life, I would not have a partner that wasn't okay with me in my reality. I don't need to be perfumed and perfect and my hair and my makeup. I want to wake up in the morning with morning breath and my hair all screwed up and I want him to roll over and go, babe, you're hot. Yeah. And he does. (laughs) It's the, when you, that morning when they start embracing it, you're like, oh yeah. I I mean, honestly, now I'm more of a brunch hour sex girl than a morning sex girl because I like to have my coffee and everything. Well, okay. Yeah. There's the coffee thing. That's true. (laughs) Like for me, it's coffee and painkillers and then I'm good to go. But it's still. We have a. We have coffee and pink. Yeah, I can I can relate. We have a picture in our kitchen of a rooster holding a cup of coffee and it says cock and coffee. So that is for me my mantra. <laughs> I, I am definitely if if I had to choose between morning and evening, I would I mean it happens more often in the evening just because that's life and work and yeah. and and we don't have time in the morning before work, but if I had my preference it would probably be morning. It would be morning. I'm awake. I'm awake. I'm I'm not tired from a long refreshed. day. I'm refreshed. I'm already in bed. It's mm-hmm. convenient. You still got to get up and take a shower so cleanup's built in. Yeah. See, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's, about, it's about being smart when you're in your 40s, I guess. I don't know. Well, we're coming to the end of the interview. Um, you do perform and you do lots of different in lots of different capacities. If people want to find you on the internet, if they want to go see a performance, if they want to support your work, where can they find you? I'm always out there on Facebook. If they want to look me up there and send me a request and just say, hey, you know, I heard you. I'm I'm interested in performances or talking to you about becoming a performer or any of the other interests that I was talking about. If they just want to you know, if they have that commonality with me, I love talking to other people that are runners or dancers or Horsey people, um, I'm I'm open to to connections. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Welcome back to Fat Chicks on Top. Thanks for staying with us. This is Auntie Vice. I'm here today with Evie Vane. She is an author, a kink educator, and the winner of the most recent Golden Flogger Award in nonfiction. Welcome to the show. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's fantastic to have you on. So the most exciting news and one of the reasons I reached out to you is your book, Bondage for Everybody, just won a major award. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the book. There's, you know, there's a ton of books out there on bondage and, you know, everything from like tabletop picture books to how to's, but you covered a new area that, that's not written about much, which is bondage for people who aren't 22 yoga models and incredibly thin. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because I think when people look at pictures on FetLife and in FetLife uh, fetish magazines and just all over the Internet, it's what you tend to see are these very young, very bendy, female bodied people. And, you know, it's just such a small slice of bondage lovers around the world that it really just wasn't representative. And everywhere I went, you know, I heard we're not being seen, you know. 
I'm, I'm afraid to do bondage because I'm a bigger person. You know, people told me I can't be suspended. You know, and I was like, what is going on? Like the majority of people in the world who love bondage are just not being seen and heard and addressed. And so that's where this, um, the book came out of the better bondage for everybody. But it's, it's fantastic. I know as somebody who's been in the kink world for some time now, when it came to bondage, I had a real hesitancy to try it, especially anything with suspension and you know, looking at the books and stuff, it was like that were out there. I had a real hesitancy to approach it because it's like, I'm just going to look like a, a strung up ham in a window when I'm done. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's great to have some representation. How has it been received in the, in the rope community specifically? You know, for the most part, the feedback has been overwhelmingly positive. You know, every week I get someone saying, thank you for putting this out there. And, you know, because just like you, they, they didn't know, you know, because People tell you what you can do and you see what you can do. And none of those things are necessarily accurate as to what you actually can do. So for the most part, it's been overwhelmingly positive. There have been a few negative reviews on Amazon just for, you know, I think whenever you try to buck tradition, you know, people feel threatened by that. And there are definitely still some rigors you know, the the people who do suspensions and some very well-known riggers who still only do tie, you know, that very, very limited demographic. And so, you know, there has been a teeny bit of blowback, but really not as much as you would expect. And really dwarfing it are, you know, the positive comments. Oh, that's fantastic. So when you set out to do the, to put this book together, when you are not you know, that super bendy yoga girl. What are some of the things that people have to take into consideration when they're when they're doing any type of bondage? I think the most important thing is just finding the right person to tie with. So you can, even if you're not super flexible, you know, even if you've never tied before, there is some kind of bondage for the most part that anybody can do. It's just a question of finding somebody who can and wants to do it with you and appreciates you for who you are. So if you want to be suspended, let's say, and you are a larger bodied person, you know, you're going to want to find somebody who has experience in that. And you're also, more importantly, going to want to find somebody who appreciates you for your unique strengths and is not just doing it because they feel obligated or for any other reason other than that they want to tie with you. Yeah, yeah. And I think it makes a difference in the way you feel about the experience. Somebody can go through it kind of as a rote thing, but if they're really enjoying it, it enhances it. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, in the end, well, for me anyway, it's about the connection. You know, there are all the other things that go into it, sensation and just the thrill and, you know, maybe like some sexiness. But in the end, like you're talking about two or more people who are getting to know each other. And so in the end, like you want to choose somebody that you would want to be with, you know, not just somebody who can provide an experience for you, you know, give you like a bondage ride, they call them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you you teach quite a bit in the bondage community. and. Mm-hmm. 
you know, in the last several years, kink has exploded. And with that, um, the rope scene in general. What have you seen as the changes coming in the community as more people are coming in? Is it getting more open to people who are new, who may not be traditional uh, body types for bondage? Has there been pushback in that area? What are you seeing when you go to conferences and stuff? Oh, for sure. I think that it's opened up. You know, it used to be that, well, and it's still in some circles, it still is that you know, there are these people who go to Japan and they study with the masters and they come back with their credentials and things like that. But, you know, the, the proliferation of bondage classes and the opening of bondage studios and play spaces has really facilitated this this wider openness about, you know, what bondage is even and what makes a good bondage scene. And increasingly, people are seeing that it's really just about what works for them and not necessarily, you know, what they see in some imported fetish magazine from Japan. So I definitely think that, you know, the wider public is finding that bondage is more accessible now than ever before. So how did you come to find it? Yeah. So the first night I went to a dungeon. So this is in my 40s. Um, I, I always knew in my heart I was kinky, but I never had the courage to explore it. And then after I got divorced, I delved into kink. And my very first night in a dungeon, now I didn't know anything, totally inexperienced, didn't do any research, you know, which may be typical, you know, of the of, of a newbie. And in the dungeon, there were all of these people doing impact play and medical play. And I was just like, no, I don't want to get beat up. I mean, later I did discover that I liked getting beat yeah. up. And, you know, the first night I'm like, no, I don't want to be beat up. I don't want to have needles stuck in me. And then I saw this suspension scene and it was it just took my breath away. It was so magical. And of course, I went up to the to the rigger while he was untying his bottom, no less, totally inappropriate. And I was like, basically, you know, can you tie me next, please? And he was so sweet. He it turned out he tied a lot of newbies, so he understood. And we did a suspension. Now, again, like I, I didn't do any research on suspension. I got a little faint. You know, um, I was wearing a corset. You know, like I just had no idea what I was doing, but he was totally understanding and he did a great job. And luckily, you know, I just lucked out in finding a great person to suspend with. But basically after that, I was just hooked on rope. And luckily I hooked up that night with another person who was learning bondage and really into it. And for the next several years, I had a steady practice partner, which really helped a lot. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And you give me a great transition. You bring up that you discovered this over when you were over 40. Mm -hmm. And we are bringing more and more people on who are women between like 40 and 60, because that's kind of the group that disappears. Mm -hmm. Right. Through your, your dirty 30s, the media and stuff will give you coverage. And then if you're like over 65, you mm -hmm. kind of reappear. But there's in our age range, we disappear. So what is reaching this this point in your life what have you discovered that's different than like when you were younger and in your 20s and 30s yeah well you know i wouldn't necessarily put it as an age thing but rather a newness to the scene versus being more experienced in the scene 
So, I mean, for one thing, definitely coming in in my 40s, I was a lot more self-aware and I was also a lot less likely to fall prey to predators, you know, just being involved in the community and having some sense of who I am and already having been through a lot of relationships that went wrong. I definitely had an idea of the red flags to look out for. So I think that helped. But also, you know, right in the beginning, when I dove in, I felt like a 25 year old. You know, I really. Yeah, it was like going back and being like the club kid that I always wanted to be. And, you know, there's a bit of recklessness to that. And I think also that willingness to be open to a wide range of experiences because everything is new. That, that's very, you know, you can get a lot of action that way. And then as I matured in, you know, in my experience in the scene, I got a lot choosier about who I played with. You know, this is a common trajectory. Like you go in, you're like a kid in a candy store. You do all the things and you play with all the people. And, and then you get a little bit more selective and a little bit more careful because you know what works and you know what doesn't work. But I will also say that, like, after I went through that initial phase when I was really, you know, just playing with everybody and being very, like, indiscriminate, when I did start being more selective, as an older woman, I did find it was a little bit more challenging to find people who want to who wanna tie. Because, but I also don't know if it's, a, it's as much a factor of age as it is that I know that I want something a little bit deeper and more meaningful than what I was thinking in the beginning. And a lot of rooftops are, you know, they thrive on that, that new energy, you know, that new person energy. And they like to tie a lot of people. So, you know, I'm missing out on that. And, you know, like right now, I don't have a steady partner. And, you know, I kind of, I, I definitely miss that. But I also know that when I do set myself up for a scene, that it's going to be much more significant and meaningful and deeper for me. So how do you create that more meaningful, add that depth to a scene? I think it's really a factor of getting to know somebody slowly because, you know, a lot of times you see somebody who's hot and you want to play with them and then you have this wham, bam, thank you kind of thing. And you don't, you know, it might linger for a little while, but it doesn't last. And when you get to know somebody over time, you get to really appreciate them as a person rather than just somebody who can do something for you. You know, it becomes much more of a mutual, you know, exchange and something that's a lot deeper. It's like dating, you know, you can have like a one night stand or you can have like, you know, a little bit more of a relationship. And that's more of what I'm finding more fulfilling for me. And, you know, everybody's different, right? Like some people may be very happy doing the one night stands and the one offs. And that's great. Yeah. So, you know, you talk a lot and you mention connection a lot when it comes to rope. And I also want to bring up that you've written about living with depression. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, I'm I'm a big advocate of don't sleep with your therapist and don't make your therapist somebody you're sleeping with. Uh, <laughs> but more and more people are talking about 
kind of the healing power of kink, and a lot of that is the connection. Do you find that your depression plays into your kink experiences or uh, your depression is impacted by your kink experiences? Oh, definitely. You know, also, I while I have depression, I officially my diagnosis is cyclothymia, which is a form of borderline bipolar. But I would definitely say if that's the case, it's depression leading cyclothymia. And, you know, I find that because I work from home, that I'm very isolated a lot of the time. So making these connections with people through rope, you know, whether it's more of a, of a sexual thing or more of just an affection thing or more of just a physical contact thing. It really helps stave off that feeling of isolation that worsens my depression. On the flip side, I do find that being prone to cyclothymia, I have like my highs are higher and my lows are lower. So I have these amazing deep rope bondage experiences that, you know, feel transcendent and wonderful. And then I drop really hard. And this was more and a lot of people, you know, rope drop is super common. But I think when you're prone to, you know, bipolar or, you know, any kind of spectrum of wide emotions, it's it, it can be a little bit more challenging to navigate. And, you know, I, I definitely had to learn over the years how to stave off that really bad drop after a really amazing scene. So what are some of the steps that you take to to lessen the the drop? Because for people who aren't, for our listeners who aren't familiar, often when you do a kink scene, you experience this drop in emotions and it can be overwhelming and a feeling of depression and stuff that can sometimes come with certain scenes. And so people have to learn how to mitigate that. So for you, how do you go about lessening some of that intensity? Yeah, I have a lot. Of, I have a lot of strategies. The biggest thing is I have to touch base with the person I tied with because my, you know, part of the thing that feeds into my depression is I start getting really down on myself and focusing on the negative. You know, like I could, I, I could have done that better, or why did I do that? Oh, that was so stupid, or you know, whatever it is. And if I just talk to the person and reopen that connection and then they say oh my gosh that was great you know we had a great time like you know and and give me some perspective that's really the main thing and looking at pictures you know sometimes when it you can see like like the look on your face it's not even about necessarily the composition of an amazing photograph but just to reanimate the scene for you in your memory that can really help and then i do a lot of self care i have a massage therapist I take bubble baths. I try to stay away from alcohol and sugar and all the temporary things that actually make your crash worse after the initial high wears off. And I talk to friends and I'm extra gentle with myself. Like if I know I'm going to have a really intense scene, then I try to plan my work schedule for the next few days to be a little bit easier so that I can take naps or, you know, whatever I need to do for self-care. Was this something you had to discover as you go along or were you aware that this could be an issue as soon as you started in the kink community? Like, how did you come to know how you responded to these type of scenes? Was it a trial and error thing or? Yeah, it was definitely a learn as you go thing. And it wasn't even something I was thinking about at all when I started. Um, I also take medication for it. So I, I 
in and in my regular life, it was pretty well under control. So I kind of just assumed that it would carry over into whatever I did in kink. And that wasn't the case. I really I did have to go through some some terrible sub drops um, to figure out how to navigate that. Yeah, and I think that's really key to get out there because sub drop and you can hear about it and you can read about it. But until you experience it, it's hard to convey the intensity of what that is. So, you know, since we have newbies coming in and you, you teach a lot of classes for newbies, if they're coming into the kink scene in general and ropes specifically, what are some of the things you tell them to look for or to look out for as they start to explore this? Oh, my gosh. There's so many things. Um, and I would say that there's a whole list of resources on my FetLife profile to go check out, which is under Evie Vane. But in a nutshell, there are the physical issues, such as, you know, nerve damage, drops, bruises, all those kinds of things. There are emotional issues. You know, is, is this person going to respect my emotional integrity and be there when I need them to be there? There are consent things you want to learn about. That's such a hot topic right now. Um, especially with the Me Too movement and, you know, just the, the root bottoms group that I started on Google. There's really a, a big focus on consent now and learning how to negotiate so that your boundaries are respected, your limits are respected. Just remembering also that you have a say in what happens to you. You know, a lot of people focus on don't do this to me. These are my limits. But they forget to talk about what they do want. You know, we just think like, I want to be pleasing to my partner. You know, a lot of and, you know, this is my perspective coming as a sometimes submissive and almost always bottom. But some people are not. I'm sure you know this. Some people who are bottoms are not submissive and, you know, vice versa. But, you know, for me, I come from this perspective of I always want to be pleasing to my partner and I just want to do what you want to do. Well, that was in the beginning anyway. Then I learned <laughs> that if I don't talk about what I want, then I'm not going to really get what I want unless it's by accident. Because as we all know, tops are not mind readers. Exactly. So, yeah. If people want to find you, if they want to find your books, uh, your classes, where do they go? Yeah, so I do have a website, ropebottoming.com. I also have a YouTube channel. It's the Evie Vane channel. And in fact, there's a wonderful video with a larger bodied rope bottom called, gosh, I think it's called Rope Bondage Curves Ahead. And she gives a lot of tips for bigger bodied people in that video. There are two books. There's A Little Guide to Getting Tied Up and Better Bondage for Everybody. And then I also have Fat Life profile, as I mentioned already, with a ton of great resources. That's great. Thank you so much for being on the show. We'll make sure all the links are up on the Fat Chicks website. So you can also go there and link to Evie's books and her profiles and her YouTube channel. And thank you for being on the show. It was great to talk to you. You too. Thank you so much.
This has been a Fat Chicks on Top production with your hosts, Auntie Vice and Jenilyn. Thank you to our sound engineer, Sharon Smith, and David Manga for our awesome music. For all things Fat Chicks, we're on every social media platform. For full interviews and explicit content, please subscribe to our Patreon.